As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keene, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now, for Global Wall Street, this is the important conversation for those pushing against the gloom crew. Neil Dutta has absolutely nailed the inability to go to recession and certainly nailed the market reaction to better than good news with China opening and with a more resilient American economy. With the Renaissance macro, the optimists hang on every word. What is the (laughs) distinction of your optimism right now? What is the thing that you would describe as the Dutta optimism? Well, I think it's the composition of growth that's improving. I was going to say, you know, Mike, one reason why the Empire number is coming in, uh, maybe they surveyed people before the Giants win against the Vikings. I mean, that could that could be uh, that could be what's going on. But, um, you know, Tom, I think the composition of growth is improving, right? So even though inflation is moderating, real economic growth is accelerating. And um, I think that that combination of growth is the sort of challenge for, for markets to kind of deal with. Let's dovetail your comments with Ken Rogoff, uh, with Lisa Bramwitz in Davos. And this is the idea of disinflation. And even if we're having this parlor game of where it moves, you put out a blistering chart, I'll say eight days ago, that said, wait a minute, if you get disinflation and incomes do okay, real incomes can stabilize, or dare I say, inflation-adjusted incomes could actually go up? Well, they're accelerating right now. Real uh, incomes net of transfer payments are accelerating. I mean, that's not even a debatable point. Um, you know, as an example, in December, we know that aggregate wages and salaries probably rose around two to three tenths, and we know that headline inflation fell. So that means that real incomes rose. And then you have to basically make the assumption, what do people go out and do with the newfound mm-hmm. income? And, um, you know, my sense is that they probably spend it. Um, financial conditions have been easing. I don't think you can really make much of a case right now that people are going to just spontaneously increase their rates of savings. <clears throat> so right. uh, that should keep, a, you know, a firm underbelly yeah. to consumer spending. And uh, we know that housing is now picking up again. So. At Davos, I wouldn't do algebra, but since we're in New York, we're going to go algebra algebra Tuesday here. Y equals C plus I plus G plus NX. And all of a sudden to me, NX is a constructive mystery with China reopening. Does China reopening and export-import dynamics of America, does that give you more data optimism that we could avoid a recession? Sure. I mean, um, back in, I think, 2015, uh, then-Vice Chair Stanley Fisher uh, did a seminal speech on the impact of— dollars uh, on uh, on inflation and growth. Um, remember, at the time, the dollar was strengthening, the Fed was backing off. 
But now it's kind of working in reverse. And if you look at the broad dollar index, it's off about 10%, um, I think, since September. And, uh, you know, the dollar has a very mechanical impact on the Fed's kind of workhorse models. And the fact that do the dollar is declining, um, I think that boosts real exports um, maybe 3 to 4% uh, in real terms, and it introduces some upside to core inflation over the next year. So uh, I think the dollar um, selling off is a, is a sign that global growth expectations are improving, and I think it's an unambiguous positive for the What US is your economy. 2023 GDP number for the United States? I'll tell you what we it's gotta, not, we Tom. Pin it's, this down. it's not 0.5%. <laughs> I think that it'll, I mean, I look, I think something slightly above potential is plausible. Maybe two. I mean, I think right. underlying growth right now is around two and a half. I'll drag my yeah. key into this right now. Is uh, Help me here with the dots. I mean, help me here with the dispersion of the dots. Are any dots as optimistic as Dada? Is there a Dada dot on the dots? There's not a Dada dot on the dots right now, which <laughs> sounds silly to say. Rubber baby buggy bumpers. But, but what you've got going is is a situation, and, and Neil and I actually argued this out mm -hmm. on the, the Bloomberg message system the other day. The Fed makes its forecast. And they make 19 forecasts, and we arbitrarily pick the median and say that's the Fed uh, forecast, and it's made once every three months. And Wall Street changes its mind about what growth and unemployment and uh, interest rates are going to be every day, every five minutes. And so to go back and say the Fed is wrong by saying half a percentage point growth in December – that's not really fair. The Fed starts to change its mind as well, and they will have a new forecast in March. But even at this upcoming meeting, I suspect you're going to hear Jay Powell say uh, that growth forecasts are rising. And we heard Pat Harker, the Philadelphia Fed president, the other day say he's marked his up to 1% for the year. Right, but they're they're taking down their, they're taking, let's assume that that's right, they're taking up their growth forecast as we go into the March FOMC meeting and uh, in February. But at the same time, the market odds of a 25 basis point move are also solidifying. So the idea that they're going to go another 50, that's going down even as they're raising their okay, growth but, forecast. But, but I lo look at Bloomberg, though. Look at your own Bloomberg consensus. I don't know how to do that. ECFC. ECFC go. Um, you learn something every day. Q, Q1, Q1 real GDP, Q over Q, percent change annualized, 0.1%. Q2 coming in at minus 0.6. These are very, very depressed forecasts. For, and this is the consensus, so the one that well, updates quite frequently. So I think that's dramatically okay. offsides, considering we're going into we're, the year something close to three, maybe if you trust the Atlanta Fed, 4%. So I think there's the consensus has a lot of work to do in kind of adjusting their expectations. Okay, well, in, in search of it, where is the dot a dot out there? When are we going to see not just a single dot, but get, you know, go plural, get dot a dots out there from the Fed? When do they migrate? How many meetings out do they migrate where the dispersion lifts up and there's some real optimism about one or two, even three, dare I say, 3% GDP. To me, the, um, the, the, the dots, the, the risk with the dots right now is that the cuts that are currently baked into the 2024 outlook get priced out because growth is coming in a lot stronger than expected. So if the Fed, I mean, right, all of these are sort of premised on your, ex, your, your assumptions around unemployment and, and so forth. Right. The Fed expects the unemployment rate to go up a full percentage point from where it is right now. And if growth is coming in slightly above potential, as I expect, that means that there's room for the unemployment rate to fall. And if the unemployment rate remains low, then right. the likelihood of them cutting 
in 2024, I think that goes away. So that, to me, is the risk with the dots. I can tell you when it happens, Thomas. March 22nd is the, <laughs> right. is the Fed meeting at which they will have a new uh, summary of economic we'll projections. See, we'll observe and, data dots. And, and data dots at, at that yeah, Help me with retail sales here. Mike was setting us up for it with his grim empire number. You know, you know where I am on this. And I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. But <laughs> the answer is retail sales matter, 70% of the economy. Sure. Inflation coming in, it's going to be dampened. So how do you interpret retail sales with the dynamic of disinflation? There's some fluky seasons. I mean, I think if I'm not mistaken, I think December of 2021 was a really weird month. We had a big decline in uh, in core retail sales that month. And um, I think there might be some seasonal adjustment issues that are going on, you know, following the pandemic that kind of depress the uh, the re- numbers like retail sales in December. And, um, you know, we probably make that up in seasonally adjusted terms sometime in the spring. What I can <clears throat> tell you is that, um, you know, it looks like uh, the inventory adjustment is largely over. And so, um, right. you know, and so I think that could be one reason why prices in things like apparel aren't really collapsing as much as Well, this is really important. I'm glad you bring this up. Dana Telsey's been lights out the last time with the Telsey Advisory Group folks on, on retail. I, I sort of knew that was going to happen, Mike, but school us on inventories, which is this obscure thing nobody really understands. Don't give me LIFO, FIFO, but are you surprised, like Mr. Dutta mentions here, that we cleared inventories, it seems, really rapidly? Um, I don't know if I'm surprised because there's no point to a business holding on to inventories. It's not going to sell. So if you go to uh, TJ Maxx or Marshalls or something like that, you'll see some of that inventory and it will be marked down because people are just trying to get rid of it because you get new stuff coming in all the time. But also in the retail sales report, um, we saw in December gasoline prices continue to fall. So that'll take some off of retail sales. Uh, Autos are they fell right. auto sales. They they were not as high, but it's a difficult one to translate into the retail sales report. You know, th- this is so important, Mike. That we've got people bring the camera over here, uh, and, and and they're talking on, on the internet about your socks right now and the symbolism. <laughs> you know, low mail. You know, I, I mean, these are extraordinary socks, folks. I could never be caught dead using those. <laughs> what is the economic? Is that are those optimistic socks? Is that what those uh, are? Well, if it's a donut, it was a reflects the donut. On headline inflation. Okay, very good. Neil Dutta there with the donut socks, giving us a signal of optimism, optimistic economic growth. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising healthcare costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. 
Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. And what's important here is the timeline. Mike Wilson's idea of long-term within, you know, the structure of a big Wall Street firm is, I'm going to say, six months, nine months, maybe a year. What do you do, John, if you have a longer-term time frame, three years, five years, coming out of a pandemic, China reopening, you've had this nice gift of a lift, then what? And that's sort of where we are going into February. Let's do some of that right now with Chris Harvey, the head of equity strategy at Wells Fargo Securities. Chris, let's start there. Bear markets are like a hall of mirrors designed to confuse investors and take their money. Is this a bear market rally? Um, Bear market rally. Uh, This is a rally, no doubt. It has a lot of um, the hallmarkings of a uh, January effect, as you were pointed out. Credit spreads are, are tightening high yield, IG, but but risk is rallying, smaller caps are rallying. I don't know if I'd call it a, a bear market rally. What I, I what I think is we're probably going to begin to stall out here. We think fair value in the short term is somewhere around 4,000. And, and at the end of the day, it's true that credit spread, excuse me, not credit spreads, but margins are going, going to compress. EPS is going to come down. But we think we're really facing more of an economic malaise than, than we are some sort of sharp um, recession and so as a result, you have to be careful. You have to place your bets. We think mid-cap growth is that sweet spot. And overall, the, the, broader, the broader market's a little bit tough. We think things will trade higher, but you can see a pretty big downside from here. So, Chris, within that, there was a call on the economy and there was a call on earnings. Can we just separate the two just for a moment and focus on earnings, Chris? What kind yeah. of earnings are you expecting this quarter and the outlook for the rest of the year? Yeah, so let me say this. For the last two or three quarters, there's been a lot of fear-mongering coming into earnings, right? And so when you fear-monger, what happens is you lower expectations. We've lowered expectations so much in the last couple of quarters that the numbers haven't been great, but the phrase, things are better than expected, has been true. And I think that's going to be true this time around. We are going to see some margin compression. We are going to see some revisions down. But now's not the time where you really lower guidance because because the economy's still okay. What we're worried about more so is when you report first quarter numbers. But right now, we think things will be okay for now or better uh, better than feared is probably the right word. Well, Christian, your beautifully concise note, you speak of a tactical shift. And as I get that there's been a tactical shift. Everybody's gotten this mother of all recession calls wrong, wrong, wrong. Help me with April or May is June. How do I prosecute tactics now to survive into second quarter? Tom, that, that's a great question. And that's a question that we're having with a lot of clients. We had a lot of clients that performed quite well last year come into this year and they've just gotten run over. And, and what they're saying is, hey, do I turn? Do I shift? Do I, do I tactically move? And our answer is, is no, right? Because ultimately we're going to see some sort of downside. We're going to see some sort of pain, whether it's economic, whether it's earnings or, or whether it's macro. And so you, we have 12 months, 11, 12 months in the year, too early to shift. And there's a lot of, a lot of room between now and then. So at the end of the day, we're having a bounce. Right. That bounce, we kind of understand. But ultimately, the worst isn't over just yet. Chris, the financial media is guilty of this. And frankly, Bloomberg and myself, we're as guilty as anyone of a complete focus on the big banks uh, and, you know, and, and what Wells Fargo is doing and the rest. Okay, great. After the big banks, which earnings matter to you? 
Which earnings? So what we're looking for is we're looking at cyclical earnings because we think that's where where the pain is going to be, right? Cyclical earnings. The old economy stocks out uh, outpunched their weight last year, and, and that's where we think the pain is going to be. If you're going to believe that the economy is slowing down, which we do, that's where you should see most of the pain. That's where we should see the margin compression, and, and that's where I think stocks are most liable. Chris, a bank's part of that cyclical story that you just described. Yeah, banks are part of that, but but we're not as worried about credit as other people because one of the reasons being is, is the job picture is much better than many people expect, and we expect that the job picture to be pretty robust at least for now. And so as a result, credit should be okay. And and, and what we've seen so far is credit's not great, but it's normalizing. It, it it's okay or it's where it should be. It's not worse than expectations. For a long time, we used to talk about tech as the secular growers. These big things that didn't worry about the cycles of the global economy. Chris, do you think those tech names are now cyclicals? Um, so, some of them, if you, you look at semis, semis are definitely cyclical. Software, I, I'd say less so. And, and one of the things that we're seeing is a lot of industrials are becoming a little bit more growthy. Um, and and here, here's the thing. The big debate that we're having right now is what takes leadership? Is it energy? Does tech come back? And, and what we think is it's going to be a lot more idiosyncratic market don't look so much for this one big trade or this this one big knockout. Really get back to the fundamentals. Look for that good <clears> risk reward. Again, we think it's in that mid-cap growth space, and, and you can get some good valuations down there, 15 times earnings or so. Um, and, and don't focus so much on the macro. Okay, well, that's great. I'm focusing right now on S&P 500 up 4.2% in, you know, 9, 8, 10 days, whatever we've had this year. Are you going to give me a double-digit return in 2023? So what we think in 2023 is ultimately you're going to get to 4,200. You're going to get to 4,200 because we think rates are going to come down. We think inflation is coming down. And we think the economy is slowing. And what is that? That's a growth market. And what is the S&P 500? That's a growth indice. And at the end of the year, even if the Fed doesn't cut, which we don't think it will cut, the market will believe that it's going to cut. And, and we should see that reflect in the shape of the yield curve and, and interest rates. So I go to Chris on this. This is the heart of Bloomberg surveillance. Do we have two opposing views here between what we see from Wells Fargo and what we see from Morgan Stanley? Couldn't be farther apart. Are you talking about the path or point to point? Both. Because the shape of the path. I mean, Chris, didn't you talk about a potential for real downside here in the next yeah, term we, at least? We, that, that's right. We, we think there's downside to 3,400, but ultimately you do recover, right? We, we do think that we earn, excuse me, that we end up higher. 4,200 is the high for this year. And, and we do think we get there. We think that, again, what you're facing is more of an economic malaise, not a sharp sell-off, not something that, that's going to be horrific. And as a result, we can muddle through that. And, and let's not forget the Fed is going to, or we think the Fed's going to stop raising rates sometime this year. That's a positive. And if we get through a situation where it's more of an economic malaise than a sharp sell-off, then, then earnings, they'll be dented, but they won't be, they won't collapse. Hey, Chris, enjoyed this. Thank you, buddy. As always, Chris Harvey there of Wells Fargo. Al Salinos, Global Head of FX Strategy at RBC, joins us right now. Al, so we'll talk about the BOJ in just a moment. I think investors not interested in good versus bad, but better versus worse. Are things getting better or worse? 
So it feels like you've got conflicting signals coming at the moment, a muddled outlook for many, in that if you look at the equity market, as you highlighted at the start, huge rallies to start the year, some real optimism airing in. At the same time, yields moving lower, so bonds rallying. It's that kind of bond equity rally that's the perfect storm for the US dollar. Um, but it does feel like there's a bit of a conflict between the messages we're getting from the two sides. Do you think that move we've seen in the dollar so far is sustainable? Are there some sustainable headwinds against the US dollar that you think last through 2023? We've had a 10% plus move since the end of September, so that's quite a move. Exactly, and I think the danger is we're falling into the same traps that markets fell into at the start of 22 and at the start of 21, where everybody starts the year with a very strongly bearish dollar consensus. I know it feels weird given how strong the dollar was in 22, but that was the consensus at the start of the year. And we spend all of January putting on those positions and then it snaps back. You know, whether it snaps back in February, March, whether this year it takes a little bit longer, yeah. maybe in the back half of the year, um, it's not going to be quite as straightforward as just sell dollars and close your eyes. Elsa, Lisa Abramowitz, in the last hour with Kenneth Rogoff, at Davos and the World Economic Forum, and they're talking there about the Fed and about this relentless rate increase. Against that is the distraction of Japan. I thought Ambrose Evans Pritchard in the Telegraph with Professor Rogoff today with a nod to Olivier Blanchard was just brilliant. The giant wild card, Japanese inflation has returned in the aftermath of COVID, pushing the country from a bad but stable equilibrium into an unstable equilibrium. And just for perspective, folks, Japan owns 8% of France's public debt. Elsa, how do you synthesize the Japanese conundrum? This is a really interesting point, Tom, because we've actually started to see it in the data coming out from Japan. They have turned into sellers of European government debt. Um, and as you highlight, they are big holders of French government bonds. My colleague Adam Cole has done a lot of fantastic work on this. And though they've been selling treasuries in large size for a while, the last few months have been notable in that we've seen EGBs take the lead. Why is that happening? Right. Well, it's the cost of hedging. It's euro yen and the cost of hedging that exposure. What you do on this, and AEP has a wonderful chart on this, is you take the yen swap yield versus the published yield, the one folks that John Farrell follows so closely. And there's a huge gap. Where does dollar yen go on that presumed gap? Can you get to 120 or dare I say an even stronger yen down to parity? So I'd actually look at it the other way and say, unless the Fed is going to be cutting rates dramatically in 2023, and we're not talking one or two cuts, but really slashing rates, under most other scenarios, the cost of hedging continues to rise for Japanese investors. They're actually going to have to reduce those hedge ratios. Dollar yen goes higher. I know that's not a popular thing to say. But that could be what we see for the balance of the year as a whole. Now, so can we talk about the BOJ this week? There is massive speculation. They're going to adjust yield curve control, maybe drop it all together, adjust the band, move the maturity they focus on. What are you focused on? So it's the combination of factors, right? It's yield curve control coupled with the inflation forecast. A lot of speculation that Kuroda's going to want to leave a clean slate for the next incoming uh, Bank of Japan governor in April. It may not happen today. Actually, I think most analysts expect it to happen in March. But as you said, a huge amount of speculation. We've actually gone long Swiss yen into this meeting, only because we might be getting a bit ahead of ourselves in terms of how much we're expecting for tonight. So that's long Swiss yen against the Japanese yen, looking for a weaker Japanese yen here, Alsa. That's right. Alsa Linos with a call there, Tom. Long Swiss yen 
against the Japanese well, this yen. Is, and this is Expecting the JGB yeah. or rather the BOJ to disappoint yeah. a little and, bit. And this is important, folks, in that you don't look at just dollar against a pair. There's other cross rates as well. Elsa, what do you do on the Pacific Rim? If we have an opening up, John mentions Europe on a relative basis off the mat doing better. But as a Pacific Rim play, what does RBC Capital Markets look for? What's the best pair? So we've been looking at a number of pairs. The Australian dollar, we don't typically love it, but actually there have been good opportunities. We were long Aussie against CAD last week, and it's something we'll look to revisit on and off as the year goes on. There has been a lot of speculation, a lot of uh, positioning around China reopening, but that may have a little bit further to run. And not just the reopening, but also apparent thawing in relations between Australia and China that I think is worth paying close attention to. You know, I, I look, Elsa, at the moment, as John mentions, it's a Bank of Japan week. Everybody's radar is off Europe. What are the degrees of freedom that Christine Lagarde has right now? She's the most, she's the least talked about, I would suggest, right now. And all my radar's up on that. Yeah, she's probably happy to be out of the spotlight for a bit, right? But there was a really interesting article, uh, interview this morning um, given by Philip Lane, the chief European economist, and he was highlighting that rates will have to rise further, but that Europe is facing a shock in terms of energy prices that the U.S. is not facing. And that at the end of the day, that does mean rates will have to rise less in Europe than they have risen in the U.S. I think that's an important reminder to just, you know, there are critical differences between here and the other side of the Atlantic. I, I, I look at, uh, uh, Elsa, the, the moment in foreign exchange, and it is about a certain weak dollar. What is the level of weak dollar? I think it's so important to reset going into the end of March, into April. How much is the weak dollar move going to be? Look, I think in terms of the year as a whole, I actually expect, and again, I know this is going to sound controversial, I actually expect the dollar to end a little bit stronger, certainly in, across um, the yen and you know, probably against the euro as well, just given where we are now. How far we overextend into the end of March is really anybody's guess, because I do think that momentum for the weak dollar trade has some more legs, has further to run. Um, but again, as I said, I would be looking for that as an opportunity to reposition for a slightly stronger dollar in the back half of the year. Just the final one from me. What's the number one factor behind that dollar strength that you anticipate in the back half of 23? combination of the Fed potentially not easing as much as people anticipate, coupled with the fact that, as you said earlier, we've had a 10% move since September. We've priced a lot of that story in already. An amazing turn we've seen in a couple of weeks. Nine trading days, Alsa, and all of a sudden a lot of people changing their minds. Alsa Linos of RBC. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. 
Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. I can't tell you, Lisa, how my life changed in Colorado engineering under the hard wooden ruler of Ruth Rebecca Sturrock. And I know Mike Worth survived the mathematics of Colorado as well. Well, from the hard role uh, that you experienced to uh, the Davos Alps and what we're talking about here with Mike Worth of Chevron are a host of geopolitical issues that are coming together with oil front and central. Mike Worth, uh, CEO of Chevron, so happy to have you with us. But I want to start there. Everyone here is talking about China, the reopening, how much it's going to juice the global economy. When is it going to affect commodity prices in the way people have been predicting? It could be coming, Lisa. Uh, I've met with some people from China even today, and uh, what they tell me is the pandemic has largely moved through the big cities. Uh, people are back at work. Uh, the economy is beginning to move forward. We're not really seeing it in commodity markets yet, but the absence of that demand is one of the reasons why we've seen prices soften, and the return of that demand is what could start to firm them up again. Although some people say that China is getting all of their supplies geared up from Australia, from coal, from all sorts of different supplies. They have huge stockpiles that they're going to unleash to dampen any kind of sudden surge in demand. Do you agree with that assessment? Well, the data out of certain parts of the world is a little bit harder to interpret than others. And China sometimes diplomatic. <laughs> is, um, is a little bit difficult to see in the short term what's happening. But clearly, in the longer term, we can see that oil demand out of China has been down here during the pandemic. And, um, and, and they will use coal, they'll use liquefied natural gas, but they'll use oil as well. And, uh, and as their economy does return to full strength, I think we will see it in demand in a world that's pretty tight right now. And so that's the, I think that's the case for some upside in commodity prices this year is a strong return of the Chinese economy. How much upside could that be? It's really hard to say. We try not to predict prices because you're always wrong. Uh, what I will say is that supply and demand are uh, fairly finely balanced. And, and post the pandemic, as economies have opened, supply has been struggling to keep up, which is why even before the war began, we, start, we, we saw some strength in prices. And we have markets now that are constrained by uh, rules on who can sell to, which countries can buy from, from other countries, what prices things can transact at. So shipping legs are longer than they were before. There's a lot of strain on these markets, and it wouldn't take a big surge from China to really start to, to push against some of those constraints. Because of some of those concerns and some of the frictions that you're talking about, have you changed where you do some of your production, where you focus some of Chevron's drilling and, and exploration? We really haven't. Those are long-term decisions that we make based on a long-term view on supply, demand, technology. In the short term, we need to be nimble with logistics, uh, with the way that we manage uh, supply relationships with our customers, 
in order to try to be sure that we meet our obligations. So there's a lot of uh, commercial activity and logistics activity to respond to the kinds of things that we're talking about. But the long-term uh, decisions are made on uh, you know, the fundamentals of the geology, the markets, and, and, and uh, a long-term view of those things. Do investors reward you more for investing in production in a way that they hadn't a couple of years ago simply because of suddenly this renewed focus on fossil fuels after they've been left for dead? Certainly our sector for the last decade uh, has uh, not performed like the rest of the market. And, uh, and some of that was, I think, a lack of capital discipline by companies in our sector. Some of it was the narrative that oil and gas were going away sooner than they, than they likely will. And uh, we certainly saw last year the sector perform very strongly. And I do think that investors have uh, you know, reacquainted themselves with the fundamentals of the energy business, with the cash that, that companies generate in the sector. Uh, we, we've, uh, by the end of the third quarter last year, had, had generated record cash in our business. And, uh, and, and so, uh, you know, there's more capital discipline. I think the demand is there. And I do think the market is beginning to uh, come back to us. But what I'll say is, you know, earnings in our sector uh, through three quarters of 2022 represented 10% of S&P 500 earnings. By market capitalization, it's only 5% of the S&P 500. So I think there's still upside. You know, earlier this year, earlier last year, the Biden administration came out and said, we're going to lower prices as, as gasoline prices surged. We're going to do these releases from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Do you think that was a good policy? You know, I think it, uh, it certainly provided oil supply to a world that was concerned about the reliability of oil supply. Uh, the reserve wasn't really set up uh, for price uh, excursions. It was set up for true supply outages, which we didn't experience last year. Uh, so the, the risk in having used the supplies the way they've been used is if we were to run into something that is more serious in terms of the availability of supply, there's not as much dry powder left as, as there has been for the last several decades. So it's, it's run things lower. Uh, I think it did have a, a bit of a calming effect on markets. Uh, but it's left us in a little bit more of a, a delicate situation. And now they're saying that they're going to potentially repurchase uh, at around $70. Perhaps they've missed that, but they might start refilling it uh, come February. Is this the role of the government? I mean, to sort of set a, a floor, is that basically what they've done? It's very interesting uh, the amount of intervention we've seen governments uh, engage in into markets that historically they really have, have allowed to function uh, on market fundamentals. Uh, my personal view is that um, uh, a price that the government says will refill the SPR at, at this price doesn't change investment decisions for our company. Uh, if we want to sell our barrels in the future at a certain price, we can go to financial markets and do that today. So uh, these kinds of things won't change the way that we invest. I, I can't speak for other companies in our industry. Do you think that this could potentially affect pricing next year if there is a push to refill or that, that pressure uh, on the other side of supplies coming into the market is not there? I mean, are you expecting that to kind of change the dynamic in a way that the market isn't fully reflecting at this time? Well, it would certainly be incremental demand in the market that would be buying the commodity, which has been selling it uh, over the last year. Uh, my guess is, uh, and I don't have any unique information here, is that the government will refill slowly over time and, uh, and that it won't come in in, in a large surge, but in a more uh, measured way uh, that will you know, probably be something the market can handle. A lot of people are talking about this renewed focus on fossil fuels and energy companies being their top bet for this year. So suddenly people are absolutely flooding back and saying, you know, perhaps we got carried away with ESG. Have you 
stopped investing quite as much in some of the renewables. Are you emphasizing that even more as sort of energy security? How are you playing that given that the dynamic, the conversation has shifted? Our strategy has been to uh, leverage our strengths to provide lower carbon energy to a growing world. And so we're spending the same uh, money, we're investing in the same technologies, we're working on the same kinds of projects in our new energies business, renewable fuels, hydrogen, carbon capture and storage, uh, technologies like geothermal. Uh, again, we take a long-term view on, uh, on markets and, and on investment. And so the, uh, I think the dialogue being reset, and, and I wouldn't say it's fully reset, but it had become uh, very polarized. And what, what I've been arguing for is a more balanced approach that recognizes the importance of affordability, recognizes the importance of reliable supply for, for national security reasons, and protects the environment. And an approach both from governments and from companies that balances these out. And, and that's what we've certainly been trying to do. Just lastly, I'm curious about some of the sanctions that have been put on Russian oil, and some of which are going to come online come next month, particularly around diesel mm -hmm. in Europe. How much do you think that's been priced in? How much is that going to be an additional price shock? Markets are certainly forward-looking. This has been telegraphed for, for quite some time. And so I think that uh, just as we saw when the oil price cap and the European sanctions came in, uh, the market was generally prepared. I think people anticipate it. Uh, the, the risk is unintended consequences. And products tend to move in smaller quantities uh, to local markets. Uh, not moving uh, a steady source of supply into Europe means that supply will go to more distant markets and Europe will have to find their supply from new markets. And so I think some of that is underway. More of it uh, is likely to follow. So there is the risk for some disruptions. Mike Worth, thank you so much for being with us. Wonderful speaking with you. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.